Well, welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air. This is the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age Railway Track and Structures and International Railway Journal. I'm William C. Ventimono. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. This is part two of uh, a two-part series on rail electrification with the Rail Electrification Council. We have the co-founders of this organization. Uh, Jim Hecker is a senior counsel and energy strategist at Hush Blackwell. And he is also uh, notably the former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Steve Griffith is executive director of uh, transportation systems and cybersecurity at the National Electric Manufacturers Association, also known as uh, NEMA. So part two here, uh, we want to look at benefits. We want to look at costs, uh, impact on railroad operations, finances, safety, uh, talk about a possible timeline, and then uh, also take a look at co-location of electric transmission lines. But uh, let's start with, um, uh, go back in, in time a little bit to the, the 70s and 1980s uh, when electric, rail electrification was studied and um, uh, a lot of a lot of the railroads were uh, electrified railroads, at least on the freight side, were pulling their wires down like Conrail. But there was some serious uh, serious research on this. So, Jim, why don't you uh, take us back a good forty years in time and uh, give us a brief snapshot of what was going on at that time? Thanks, Bill. Uh, happy to do that. Um, uh, I've looked at a number of reports uh, uh, before and after the Staggers Act, the Department of Transportation and some private associations uh, were taking a very serious look at electrification. And some reports came out in um, uh, the 1974 to 1981 timeframe. The one that I find particularly interesting uh, is a DOT uh, report on the costs and benefits of railroad electrification in which they say uh, the main concern of railroads, at least at that point, uh, with re with regard to electrification with the financial and business uncertainties. And I don't think that's changed at all. Electrification success depends on a strong growing market for rail transportation services over the project life of the electrified facilities. What has changed, of course, is that now we find the railroads a no growth or slow growth environment. Uh, where they tend to be losing market share to trucking. And it's not clear that that'll affect electrification. Certainly makes it more difficult from a from the standpoint of capital. Since that era, electrification hasn't really been at the top of the agenda until, until recently. And uh, uh, now we're looking at a lot of pressure to grow the electric grid. Uh, we've got renewable energy, the advent of, of cheaper gas turbine technology, and the relative decline of uh, coal as a source of electric generation and as a, as a motive force for, for railroads. There's a lot of water under that bridge, and, uh, and we're in a different environment. So the question is, you know, is electrification feasible in, in this new world? And Steve and I and the council think it definitely is, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a complex uh, kind of a scenario that we're looking at. Uh, electrification 
is impacting across the economy, transportation, of course, heating, industrial processes, and electric demand because of that is expected to increase substantially, uh, maybe even double in the next uh, 20 years. And that has one very interesting consequence since a lot of electric generation is going to be widely distributed as opposed to the big central generation units that we've had in the past. And that means uh, it all has to be tied together with electric transmission investments. And those investments are expected to grow by $100 billion just in the next 10 years. There are a lot of things happening electrically around the railroad industry. I think we can see the railroads taking a fresh look at what that means for them. So you uh, have here several potential benefits of uh, electrification. Steve, why don't you uh, give us a snapshot? And there there are quite a few of them. There are a lot of, I think, uh, benefits uh, to electrification. You know, clearly the one that jumps out is, you know, emissions and reduction, right? You can also cut down on noise, right? Um, especially the all-electric locomotives is, is a little bit quieter, particularly when it's not going at really high speeds. So there may be locations where noise is an issue. So there's 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 things to consider there. Um, when you when you're talking about a battery electric a locomotive as as a, as a as a way of providing power as well, you know, in, in cases where there's a need for additional grid power or emergency backup power, why not use a battery electric train to provide power back to the grid? And we know that the trucking industry electrifying the need for the railroads to electrify is to is to remain competitive with trucking, right? Um, we know that the railroads are concerned about losing their market share as trucks become more electrified, become more efficient, and especially in areas where you're dealing with a lot of congestion and traffic. There's an opportunity there to, to become more competitive with trucking. Also, when you get to, you know, all the benefits, um, the thing that's something sometimes overlooked is the operational cost benefits, similar to like when you're when you own it compared to an, uh, an EV to an internal combustion engine. There's a lot less moving parts. In, in an electric motive, there's a lot of a lot of things that are you don't need when you go electric, like the additional generators or the the turbochargers or the tanks or the filters or the you know the radiators. So all those less moving parts in an electric locomotive would definitely save on maintenance in the long run. You have a term here: uh, electric power arbitrage, peak shaving, uh, trackside industrial parks. Uh, what, what exactly is that? Again, I think the, the idea here is that as more and more vehicles become electric, there's a concern with, you know, um, as these things are charged, uh, you don't want to overload trans, you know, overload transformers or sections of the grid. So using like a battery electric train can arbitrage the power. You can store it locally and then send it back to the grid when you need it in, in times of low demand. It, it kind of helps with, with, with the load. So the idea of, an, you know, of a train using a charging station at, at an industrial park, you know, maybe it's coupled with an energy storage system, right? That you're storing the energy from the, the stored energy from the train and a corresponding energy storage system that is sent back to the grid when needed, stored locally in times to say peak demand. Essentially, the uh, the railroads can become electric generators themselves. They, they can, uh, can store energy, not just in locomotives, but you you think of this as a potential use for waysides. Large uh, battery storage units uh, could be key to helping keep the the grid reliable and resilient. 
particularly under extreme circumstances. So that would essentially make the railroads part of the power business. And you also mentioned here the potential to stimulate new industry, developing industries, battery, regenerative, braking uh, power, hydrogen. Well, one of the most important considerations for any type of project or any type of technology is the cost uh, and for the railroad's return on investment. So why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about the, uh, some of the uh, cost considerations, uh, strategic transition uh, considerations, upfront costs, uh, sunk costs, equipment, maintenance. Cost is often comes forefront to mind, and I've heard numbers thrown around that it's you know, 2 million per track mile, 2.5 million per double track mile for overhead cannon area. I think that's, I've seen that a lot. Um, I think there was a actually, um, I found some old information on the, on the New Haven Boston electrification cost, which was 2.3 per route mile, and that included the not only the locomotive but the substations, the transformers, the signaling, um, you know, the property acquisitions, the management. Yes, it's a big concern, right? I think you, it goes back to my point: is that yes, there is there is an upfront cost, but when you start looking at the total ownership cost, right? And we know that um, fuel is a big part of that. Um, I saw a graph from the the Energy Administration EIA and how that 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 has oscillated from like one dollar per gallon to over five dollars per gallon over the past forty years, and that's a very fluctuating graph. We know fuel costs are, are a big issue for the railroads there's ways you can you can look at specific route studies to determine what's the best business case for 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 moving towards these alternate fuels right you don't need to electrify the entire tracks via overhead cannon there could be certain use cases where that makes sense maybe there's some cases where it makes more sense to go battery electric again it depends on on the on the location the geography the region the cost of electrifying the existing system you know, if you look at it as a whole, that's a pretty daunting number. I, I think it's it's important to think about how that kind of electrification would happen incrementally or be phased in. The question shouldn't be, are we going to convert to electric wholly, move the, move the system to electricity all at once? Uh, is that even operationally possible? But how can it be done in significant ways that would benefit railroad operations and also uh, begin to move towards the kind of benefits that Steve described. Yeah, I would have to agree. There's no one size fits all. And uh, when you when you talk to the, the railroads and um, some of the uh, manufacturers who were involved with uh, battery electric or hydrogen uh, or, you know, renewable diesel, all these new uh, fuels, new technologies, they're all saying the same thing that we're, we're not looking at wholesale replacement. We're looking at specific market specific areas, or you can have a combination. Key is that all of this really fits together operationally, especially when you're looking at a national rail network with a lot of interchange. Uh, you have run through power, um, you have uh, sunk costs with uh, fueling stations and, and crew districts and uh, it's quite complicated. So, so that brings us really directly to our next topic: the impacts on railroad operations and finances, and and of course, safety. Safety is always a big issue. Communications are a critical issue. The transition from steam to diesel was a lot more difficult than thinking about the transition from diesel electric to electric. One of the things that, that you talk about here in terms of impacts on railroad operations, 
you call them uh, stranded costs and uh, sunk costs is another term for it. The fueling infrastructure, unamortized locomotives. And you know, the railroads now are, are actually, they're not buying new diesel electric locomotives. They're taking their existing equipment and refurbishing it repowering it and getting another 20 or 30 years out of it. And then there's also the labor issues, you know, retraining crews or re- re- retraining operators and also on the maintenance away side. You know, now you're adding another element. Now you're talking about catenary poles, catenary transmission equipment. So you're adding a whole new layer Uh, on top of that. And the cost has to be significant. I think you've acknowledged that. What the railroads are are really, really interested in is what is the return on investment? Well, the return on investment is uh, obviously the key here. They're going to have to muster significant capital to make a lot of the changes that you just mentioned. If they make a wrong strategic decision, it could be costly. And what I mean by stranded investment is that they could opt to go with catenary or with battery power and a technology might leapfrog those investments and those investments would end up being being stranded and partially at least unrecoverable. Potential benefits uh, from electrification could be quite important and the income, the revenue that they could generate from utilization of their rights of way could also be a real contributor to their returns. The tough part is that we are in a moment right now Maybe as we were back in the early 70s, where change is starting to happen pretty fast. I don't know if I have confidence that the railroads are thinking about how opportunities are going to pass them. There are potentially some government funding opportunities, uh, money available through the uh, uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and there's other programs. But given that the railroads have always approached government involvement you know that they they with arm you know they want as little as possible and they you know they approach things at arm's length you know public private partnerships are 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 okay but outright funding and grants that's you know at least for freight for private industry that's a no-go commuter rail uh amtrak you know that's a different story but here we're talking about investment and possible government participation shall we say in in these projects i think there's ways that um you mentioned, you know, public-private partnerships. There are investors out there that are willing to work with the railroads to make these investments. There could be test cases where government funding might help. Jim, one of the things that you you just mentioned briefly uh, is co-location of electric transmission lines, uh, and this has been discussed. Railroads have this great infrastructure, this great national network, a right of way, and uh, well, okay, let's uh, let's provide this right of way for electric transmission because you know the power grid, a uh, national power grid, is stressed. All these electric vehicles coming online and charging stations, it's going to overtax the grid. So we're going to need more power out there. And maybe the railroads can help provide the means to get the power to where it needs to be and benefit from that. I think people would go into shock if I told them there are 3,000 utilities in the United States. Most of them are private profit-driven, and the big utilities are now looking for opportunities to partner with other industries and with government. I think you're 
uh, probably familiar with a lot of the changes that have come with the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and DOE's Grid Deployment Office, which is which is now looking to find large electric transmission projects that they can partner with as what they call an anchor tenant. Uh, that is, uh, they would commit to playing a role in a partnership way with private utility developers in bringing projects to fruition. It's a interesting moment in the electric utility side because operations and regulation there are changing uh, significantly. Transmission now is an open access asset. That means that building a large transmission line entails you know, making sure that everyone has non-discriminatory access to those facilities. More transmission is going to be needed to access remotely located or constrained renewable energy projects. And the generation mix, the fuel mix is, is changing significantly. This has been a period where natural gas generation has really driven the market. Renewables are coming on strong. It's a very dynamic environment right now. The investment that is going to be needed to manage that dynamism amounts to effectively doubling the demand for electricity and the amount of transmission that's got to be built to accommodate that change. We think that transmission investment is probably going to increase at a clip of $20, $30 billion every year into the 2030s and 2040s, primarily to meet the zero carbon targets that we've set in various ways to meet the climate change challenge. The trouble is that citing these projects and permitting them under various state and federal statutes has been very difficult. So that brings us to the topic of using railroad rights away, and there are many strategic advantages. The railroad is a privately owned right away, so you're 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 kind of eliminating all those multiple jurisdictions that, that Jim was referring to by going through state lines. We'll go back to the example that we talked about, I think, in our previous podcast is the Sioux Green line, right, which is which is buried which is another option for routing transmission along a railroad right away. It's it's mm-hmm. burying uh HVDC along a, a Canadian Pacific railway that's basically going to take wind or renewable energy from the middle part of Iowa and send it into the Chicago area. The undergrounding definitely has an option of, you know, you don't you don't have the visual effect of overhead canary lines. The idea is that here your railroad can use this, is monetizing this right away as an opportunity to move forward with this electrification, you know, agenda, right? And, and try to address what we know is a huge upfront capital cost investment. Well, you know, monetizing your right away by... Uh, also benefiting the environment by getting renewables to where they're needed. It's a kind of a dual purpose. It serves the grid and also helps the railroads invest in these technologies, become more market competitive with trucking. Renewable energy, specifically electric generation through hydro, which of course, which is done uh, quite successfully in, uh, in in Canada to a large extent. We do it here too in the United States. Mm. And Wind and solar, all three examples are renewable, but uh, you can build these big wind farms maybe in the Rocky Mountains where there's a lot of wind. You can build wind farms, you can leverage uh, hydroelectric power. 
builds huge solar uh, solar farms, but you got to get that power. You got to distribute it. Railroad right of way might be the answer. Yeah. It's the other great infrastructure network that we have, along with the electric grid. We think that the FERC and the Department of Energy uh, need to seriously consider urging, perhaps not requiring, but urging transmission developers to look at transportation rights of way. Highways are another one, pipelines potentially, but railroads are unique in the sense that this could be developed on a contract basis without a regulatory fiat. Railroads could negotiate a deal. That kind of bottom-up prospect means that the grid development could be driven more by the market and less by individual state regulations. One of the things uh, that you, you talk about here are uh the ESG, you know, environmental and social government railroads are looking for ESG responses for investors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think we've had we've had some investors where they talked about the importance of ESG and how um, they're looking to this total our total portfolio and how can railroads help contribute to their need to address ESG across their entire portfolio. Where do we go from here? How do we move mm -hmm. this forward? One of the things we're trying to achieve with the, with the council is is to be a, a collaboration bridge where the, with the railroads and the the energy industry can can form a dialogue and, and talk about these issues, get them thinking about this bigger picture. We've had a number of, of open meetings where we've had railroads participating. We want to continue that dialogue. We want to we want to have this conversation. We want to move toward this this vision of this this grid of the future and this this transportation area of the future. And we want to make sure the railroads continue to be part of that conversation. We're looking at our role in two different time frames. One is electrification of the rail system itself, what's involved strategically in terms of beginning that process. We know it's long term. We know it's going to be capital intensive, but we think that electrification is the wave of the future. The other time frame, of course, is more immediate. What I mentioned about the push for grid integration, building more transmission, getting more renewables to markets, and uh, the transformation that's happening on the electric side of life is happening now. And it's going to be a very busy 15 or 20 years. A lot of those opportunities to site high-voltage transmission cables in private rights-of-way with the uh, uh, revenue that that could generate is an opportunity railroads have now. Jim uh, Hecker and Steve Griffith, I wanted to thank you for joining us. Have a safe day. Thank you.